Welcome to the Cold Steel Surgical Podcast with your hosts, Amir Farouk and Chad Ball. Dr. Duncan and Dr. Gilbert, thank you so much for joining us today on, on the Cold Steel CSF 2023 edition. We're uh, highlighting a new segment this year. And uh, to all our listeners, listeners, you have to excuse my very husky voice. I kind of lost my voice this week. Uh, but we're joined by Dr. Gilbert and Dr. Duncan. Uh, Dr. Duncan is an HPB surgeon at the Royal Columbian Hospital uh, in, Bank- in BC. And Dr. Gilbert is a illustrious HPB fellow at the Vancouver Coastal Health uh, and Vancouver General Hospital in Vancouver. So they're both from the West Coast. I almost said the best coast, but then I just remember that I'm in Ontario, so I can't say that anymore. Uh, but I was, since we were both, we were, Dr. Ball and I were both inspired by the series of tweets that they put up from the CSF. And uh, we wanted to highlight some of the awesome HPB liver and pancreas content that's coming out of CSF as always. So I'll uh, I'll leave it to Dr. Duncan and Dr. Gilbert to take it away. Thanks very much for hosting us guys. It's always uh, good to listen to the podcast. Nice to finally be on it. Um, I think I'll sort of summarize some of the key uh, sessions uh, at CSF this year in terms of HPB topics. Uh, the first session that I uh, that I really enjoyed was the how I do it session. Uh, it's been run in previous years, but it was really nice because this was a video session. So people went through videos of particular technical things that they uh, sort of wanted to talk about and wanted to explain a little bit of how I do it. I think sort of my take home from this session is that robotic HPV surgery really seems to be taking a bit of a footing in Canada. Uh, there's some places that have been doing it for a long time, but I think this is or we're sort of now entering an era where there's multiple sites that are really doing or at least trying to get going really high quality robotic programs. So Jadabu Khalil and Kim Burton's from Ottawa, my residency alma mater, uh, demonstrated some really nice work on uh, robotic hepatectomies. Uh, and then Dr. Venunu from uh, the Jewish Hospital in Montreal, who's been doing, I think, robotic whipples for, I want to say since 2012, um, really highlighted uh, some of the technical nuances and how they've evolved their techniques as the different robots have come out. But I think the landscape of robotic HPV surgery in Canada is evolving and it's going to be really exciting over the next five, 10 years. I think the next session that was good, and I know Dr. Ball is a particular fan of this one, was the uh, the pancreatitis session. Uh, there were lots of good talks, uh, but I think the nice thing to see uh, was that there appears to still be a role for some patients for surgical management of pancreatitis, particularly in advanced disease. Uh, Dr. Jay Raman from Toronto really showed off some nice VARD videos that always uh, get the audience going. Um, and there was a really interesting talk uh, from Winnipeg talking about how the multidisciplinary management of pancreatitis care really requires a team of gastroenterologists, medical doctors, intensive care docs, but also really importantly, surgeons to decide when is the right time to proceed with a surgical management of disease. So it's nice to see that endoscopy has not completely taken over the management of pancreatitis because I, I still enjoy an open cyst gastrostomy. I think it's one of the nicest procedures you can you can do in HPV. So um, 
Another session that uh, I'll briefly highlight that I didn't really know very well uh, is the HPB concept session, which is pretty cool. So I think Dr. Karen Nicholas from Toronto started this session uh, and Katie uh, can probably talk a little bit more about this, but um, it's a session designed to build a, a bit of a, a multi, uh, I guess, sort of a multi-site collaborative on randomized control trials or multi-center trials in HPB surgery across Canada. And there's been some really exciting developments. I'm not sure how long it's been running for, but there's some great trials that are now starting to come to fruition. Uh, and just to highlight one that that's really exciting, and I'm a little bit biased because we had participated out here in Vancouver, is the Price Trial, uh, which is quarterbacked by Guillaume Martel out of Ottawa. It's a really neat trial that has finished accruing four sites, over 450 patients undergoing liver resection. And they're randomized whether they undergo phlebotomy before parenchymal transection or not as a way to reduce CDP and subsequently hopefully reduce blood loss. So really exciting to see what the results of that will be, especially since he was able to get four sites across Canada with 400, over 400 patients involved. Uh, so kind of a, a, a big compliment to him, but also to the HPB concept session for being able to sort of get the collaborative work going across Canada. Really exciting for the future. And then uh, Katie's going to talk about sort of the session that we, I don't want to say we, we, we quarterbacked, maybe we sort of were voluntold to participate in, uh, but we were really happy to do uh, where we summarize some of the top Canadian contributions to HPB and transplant literature over the past year. We have six papers that were chosen by a panel of three, maybe four hepatobiliary staff surgeons from across Canada. Um, and we were just going to briefly run through these as I think they're pretty relevant to everybody practicing in both general surgery uh, or HB, and especially are probably relevant if you're going to be writing your Royal College exam soon. Yeah, and these were some great papers. I thought this was, you know, I'm biased because I was there, but I thought this was a really interesting session. So um, the first one I sort of had reviewed for everyone was this uh, paper in JAMA surgery, and it's looking at the association between the familiarity of the surgeon and the anesthesiologist, and they're looking at them as sort of a dyad or a pair, and how familiar are you, and is there an association with post-operative outcomes, um, specifically looking at complex GI cancer surgeries. So this was a group in Sunnybrook um, that does a lot of excellent work, and they sort of started looking at this question. So um, really, they sort of looked up, developed this indicator, which was the dyad familiarity, which is basically the number of times these two people had worked together. They looked at the four years before the index surgery, and the surgeries they looked at were esophagectomy, pancreatectomy, and hepatectomy. And then having sort of assessed the familiarity, they then looked at the outcomes of those patients, which was really about the 90-day um, grade three to five complications for these patients. Um, they used a population-based sort of cohort um, in Ontario. Um, and so they found uh, they had you know, basically 7,800 patients included, and they had 737 anesthesiologists and 163 surgeons. Um, one of the things I thought was really interesting is that the median sort of volume of familiarity that these anesthesiologist surgeon dyads did per year was about one uh, with a range of about zero to 12. So these are dyads that aren't really that familiar with each other for these complex cases. Uh, not surprisingly, 43% of patients did have a major morbidity, and there was an association between the dyad volume and the morbidity. 
So the more familiar you guys were, the two, uh, the anesthesiologist and the surgeon, the lower the odds of major morbidity. Um, so I think that's a really interesting paper. It sort of lends weight to something that you sort of emotionally know is true, that sometimes the way you know your team is going to flow impacts sort of certainly your experience of the day. But this is sort of extrapolating that and saying that actually there's an association between how familiar everyone is and the patient's clinical outcomes, uh, which is definitely, as far as I know, the first paper to sort of look at and show that. Um, and it's sort of, I think, as a bigger picture suggests uh, that there might be a role for institutions sort of rethinking how they organize uh, the surgeons and anesthesiologists in their organization, especially if you're going to be doing high volume sort of GI cancer surgery. Um, so that was the first one we presented. And then we also um, have reviewed the findings from the five-year outcomes of the Pradesh study, looking at fulfirinox versus gemcitabine for pancreatic cancer. Um, so this is sort of expanding and following up for five years. Um, as many people may know, that was a phase three RCT that was run in France and Canada. It was adjuvant chemotherapy for resected uh, pancreas cancer. You had to have an R0 or an R1 resection. And they looked at disease-free survival as their primary endpoint, but then also looked at um, overall survival, metastasis-free survival, and cancer-specific survival. Uh, they had about 493 patients in the study, and consistent with the early results at five years still, the disease-free survival, overall survival, and uh, metastasis-free survival, all of it favors uh, fulfirinox. Uh, and that holds true in the, in the multivariable analysis as well. Um, as we also expect, 67% uh, of fulfirinox patients complete all of their treatment cycles. That number is higher with gemcitabine. 79% of those people are able to complete all of the treatment. Um, so this really reinforces, I think, what most of us have come to already believe, um, that fulfirinox is probably a more effective chemotherapy regimen as an adjuvant for pancreatic cancer, but it comes at a bit of a um, toxicity cost. And so not everyone's able to tolerate all of their fulfirinox. And so there are patients for whom a gemcitamine-based uh, regimen makes more sense. And then finally, I was particularly interested in this because I've sort of just started my practice and we do have a sort of shared care model. So this is a paper in the Annals of Surgery out of um, Ottawa looking at the feasibility and safety of a shared care model in complex HPV surgery. Um, so they looked at five-year sort of outcomes for Whipples. And so this is a shared care model. Um, they followed patients who had a Whipple from 2016 to 2020. And over that time period, there were about three to four surgeons that were in this model. They had a surgeon of the week they had often two surgeon ORs, and they did also have this sort of structured team-based approach to case management. So they reviewed cases at tumor board, but also had their own surgical planning conferences. And then they looked at 30-day mortality, readmission, reoperation, sepsis, and length of stay. And their really comparator is uh, the NISQIP database. So they're trying to essentially establish that sharing care together uh, is as safe for patients as the standard that everyone you know, presumably gets in NISQIP. So they had about 174 patients, uh, a median of about three different surgeons were involved in patients' care. 
70, almost 70% 70 of patients had a different consulting surgeon that they saw in clinic versus operating surgeon. And 57% of these patients actually met their surgeon on the day of surgery. Uh, the vast majority of people had co-surgery, so more than one HPV surgeon was there. And 99% of patients had post-op care by a different surgeon. Um, all of their sort of outcomes were essentially comparable with NISQIP in terms of morbidity, sepsis, reoperation. They had a higher length of stay than NISQIP, but they also had a lower readmission rate. Um, so overall, it looked uh, from their paper that uh, this shared care model is safe. It seems feasible for a pretty complex surgical procedure. It doesn't appear to be a significant compromise to patient outcomes. And then I believe this group is now starting to look at things like the patient experience and the surgeon experience and what's it like to actually um, be part of a shared care model and do people like it. Any uh, any comments there while I just get my slides up for my uh, for my next one? Some very interesting papers, I think, that we are happy to present there. Yeah. I mean, I just I think this just highlights again the the really neat paper and, and research centers that's going across the country uh, in HPV specifically, but just broadly in surgery in Canada, just like, you know, it spans the breadth from, you know, really intense clinical questions like fulfurinox to like kind of nebulous, but like yet so critically important questions like teamwork and, you know, how you structure your practice. And uh, the Ottawa group continues to kind of challenge some of these notions around who, uh, you know, how, how a practice can be shared or structured. I still, uh, I still don't know what, it, you know, I think the missing piece that they need to investigate is how patients perceive this, you know, they see Amir and then, or they see Rich in clinic, suddenly Amir shows up to do their surgery. Oh boy. Right. So, but, but, you know, clearly they, they made it, <laughs> they made it work. So, but anyways, thank you both uh, so much for doing this once again. And uh, these are just some awesome, awesome, papers and research to highlight and uh, rich will like, carry on awesome thanks very much uh so the uh well, the first of the papers i discussed was uh out of toronto and two groups in the u.s looking at a pretty controversial topic which is recipient and donor outcomes after living donor transplant living donor liver transplant for unresectable colorectal liver metastases so uh, this was a prospective cohort study, three North American centers. It was, was Toronto General uh, from the Canadian side of things, uh, looking at patients who had liver-confined, unresectable colorectal liver mets. They have to have demonstrated some criteria to qualify for this. Uh, and in the end, they evaluated 91 potential patients for transplantation for colorectal liver metastases. Uh, 12 patients at three sites were deemed to be candidates. 10 were transplanted with living donor grafts. Uh, and the safety profile was pretty good. So from a transplant group, they had one arterial thrombosis that was actually managed uh, without a retransplant, which is a good save. And then from a survival perspective, sort of the most interesting data is that the median follow-up was one and a half years. So we don't have a ton of follow-up data, although they're now publishing more work on this. And some work uh, was presented actually at, the, at, at this meeting on this topic. There were three recurrences of those uh, patients who were transplanted, uh, including one death at one and a half years. So the recurrence-free survival for these patients is 62%. The overall survival at the 1.5 year mark is 100%. I think sort of there's a lot of questions this raises, but this does really bring to the stage that liver transplant for colorectal liver metastases 
is a viable treatment strategy in really highly selected patients. Um, and in locations with a limited deceased donor pool, living donor may be an option. I think my take home from this is that it's going to be really interesting to see how this expands and evolves in Canada. I know in Vancouver, we're starting to look at doing this as well for colorectal liver metastases, getting this online. Uh, it's going to be interesting to also see how this interfaces with other therapies like hepatic artery infusion pump. Interestingly, a few of the patients they transplanted had pumps, and technically that can also be a bit of a challenge because the porta gets pretty sticky, as you can imagine. So a very exciting and evolving uh, option here. I think this would be interesting to see how this plays out. The second paper uh, I'm going to discuss is Piptazo versus Savoxetin as uh, antimicrobial prophylaxis in Whipple. This is a great paper, multi-center trial, three Canadian sites, Kim Burton's in Ottawa, Paul, Karen Nicholas in Toronto, and then Paul Bocerano in Hamilton. Um, basically, a pragmatic, open-label, multi-center, randomized control trial, 26 hospitals in the U.S., three in Canada, Tazo versus Safoxetin for Whipples, 400 patients in each group, significant reduction in SSI rates, 20% versus 30%. Interestingly, a reduction in pancreatic fistula rates, Lots of speculation around if that's real or if that signal probably is real. And then mortality, no difference. I think from this paper, some really interesting questions come out. I think this, I think this paper does establish Piptazo as the standard of care perioperative antibiotic for pancreatectomy. I think it's hard to justify using anything else. It also talks about how much of a problem surgical site infections are in patients who have Whipple's. Like we're still looking at 20 to 30% of patients who are going to need adjuvant chemotherapy more than likely getting a wound infection. So it's a big deal. I think there's definitely some work that can be done. I think seeing how, you know, should we be using TASO and wound protectors in patients with biliary stenting, potentially also maybe approaching standard of care, really interesting. And I, I think a, a really exciting area to improve uh, the care we can provide for our patients who undergo a big surgery. And then finally, uh, this was a clinical consensus statement looking at the roles of local regional systemic therapy for the treatment of intermediate stage HCC in Canada. So these are intermediate hepatocellular carcinomas. This was a multi-group, multi-center pan-Canada collaborative trying to uh, define the role uh, and the treatment options for patients who have intermediate stage HCC, which basically means two to three tumors with one greater than three centimeters, three or more tumors of any size, generally speaking, preserved liver function, and they can't have any metastases or extensive spread. Uh, they had a multidisciplinary committee of five IR docs, five medical oncologists, four surgeons, one hepatologist, one radiation oncologist, and they used Delphi consensus to sort of reach a consensus statement on a bunch of, uh, a bunch of statements and points. I think without going too deep into all of these here for the sake of the podcast, I think big things that came to my mind when reading this and reviewing this is that there really seems to be an evolving role for Y90 in the management of HCC. It seems like it's definitely coming to its forefront. It's being offered at more sites across Canada. Uh, we're big proponents of it out here. I think it's becoming and probably will uh, surpass TACE as the preferred local regional modality. I think if you're writing the Royal College exam in three or four years, those old questions on taste may not be as well. You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you have comments or questions, please email us at podcast.cjs at gmail.com. 
Thanks for listening.